1985, and Harrison Ford is ditching the franchises for Amish Deanna Jones and the search for a prestige pick. Otherwise known as Witness. Also featuring pre-Top Gun Kelly McGillis and an old enough for this shit Danny Glover. <laughs> who I don't believe was entirely... I don't believe was entirely young in any movie. Well, we were young in 1985, but we all grew up a little when Han Solo got that Oscar nomination. But he lost to William Hurt in Kiss of the Spider Woman, which you can hear all about at the Hurt Hullabaloo. But this, (laughs) this is the Ford Fiesta. Welcome to the Ford Fiesta. I'm Adam Zander Gudenov Witt. And I'm Paul Jeremiah Preston, as far as you know. Joining us later in the show to talk about Harrison Ford's 20th movie, our longtime fellow movie guy from the Movie Showcast, The Movie Guys Live, and more, Bart Caius. Yes, there hasn't been enough Bart Caius on the Movie no. Guys. And I know a lot of people might listen to us who followed our later exploits, like in the movie Trivia Schmodown, that type of thing. But yeah. Bart's an old school movie guy. Happy to have him with us. He'll be here later. And, you know, I'm excited for somewhere down the line. A lot of people have come out and said, ooh, I want to talk about this movie. And that's who we're having as our guests. But, you know, at some point we're going to reach, uh, you know, Firewall. And just like, Bart, come in and watch a movie you don't want to watch. <laughs> and, you know, like forcing him to watch one for a later show will be much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he probably saw it on TBS already. Though, so well, that's true. Way. We should find out what's on TBS from Harrison Ford, <laughs> like what's getting repeated play from him, and then have him cover that. We may not cover this in his introduction or when he gets on here, but uh, he doesn't leave the house much. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and he used to like it. But first... What's new in the world of Harrison Ford? Oh, well, allow me to tell you, I have... Uh reams of interesting information here. i don't read this in the script i like to be surprised <laughs> oh good all right good good well let's get your natural reaction to this exciting stuff start saving your money adam because heritage auctions will hold their hollywood and entertainment signature auction oh. now this will probably have happened by the time this episode airs but this will include the holy grail from indiana jones and the last crusade wow a section of the grail tablet from the oh. same movie wow a severed head from the end of the film the guy who fails to Penitent man is after him. Anyway, the guy who dies. And then uh, a Sankara stone from Temple of Doom. Oh, my God. And an animatronic snake from that same movie. You know, bids are happening now. And right now, the highest bid goes to... Take a guess. Sankara stone, right? Holy Grail. Oh, right. Holy Grail, Adam. Yeah, that's true. It's the Holy Grail. the Holy Grail. Currently going for 15,000. Now, Paul, this brings up a great... Conversation topic, classic topic that you could bring up about any movie. What prop would you like from the 20 movies we've watched so far of Harrison Ford? What would be your favorite prop besides the the Lost Ark or the, you know, Fertility Idol or uh, the actual Staff of Raw? What's a lower tier? Oh, the best ones? Well, then it's probably the, the headpiece to the Staff of Raw. Does that count? Yeah, that counts. Wear that as a necklace when I go to oh, anywhere, God. really, and just have, you know, people figure it out. <laughs> I would like the piece of paper that says Mr. Bob Ellis on it from, uh, <laughs> I bet that's, oh, no, 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 his fur vest from Love. That's what I want. <laughs> he had a full-on Sonny Bono fur vest in Love. 
so that's happening uh we're probably already happening again as i mentioned you mm-hmm. always love your daily mail harrison ford news daily mail loves to chime in with whatever he's doing seen in store latest... right which store <laughs> <laughs> what shirt oh here we go harrison ford 80 cuts a dapper figure on stroll in west hollywood as new details are teased about his fantastic captain america 4 role i love mm-hmm. it. he's just strolling but while he's strolling Details are teased about his role in the MCU. <laughs> Nothing to do and, with uh, what he did that day. He's in a pottery barn. They're like, hmm, what could this have to do with Thunderbolt Ross in the Thunderbolts movie? Yeah. I immediately had a rather dark thought that, you know, now Ford is finally beating out Hurt for a role that he he lost the Oscar to him, but now he's oh. taking Thunderbolt. That's a dark role. Oh, Kiss of the that's Spider Woman. That's this week, right? All right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see who laughs last. Yeah, but as we all know, yeah, he's going to be Thunderbolt Ross. That's going to be cool and coming in 2024. Incredible. What an awesomely obscure comic book and Harrison Ford's in it. (laughs) But one more quick recurring uh, segment before we get to the recap, of course, and that would be... This date in Ford history. History, 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 history. What happened in Ford history on this date, roughly-ish? It's a little past these dates, but we, we did yeah. back to uh, mention a film I just mentioned. November 24th, 2013, Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, oh, is yeah. released. That's right, and he's in he that. Cameo. Yeah. yeah. And playing Grumpy Ford. Pretty much, yeah. Maybe that's the turning point. I'm really going to keep my eye on the ball now for when in the career yeah. he switched to Grumpy Ford. Or getting hints of grumpiness, you know, like, oh, we're going to see more of that later. You know, it's like, how does he... Well, there are hints in Last Crusade. He has no time for his dad on much of the occasion. So Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then November 26th, 1986, just a year after Witness comes out, The Mosquito Coast is released, his second film with Peter Weir. And uh, we will have Adam Collins on the show to talk about it for those of you who seen our adventures in the movie trivia showdown with adam who was great at it he'll jump aboard yeah. and, and and play with us and talk about that movie and if you want to know a little bit more about adam collins he's the sort of guy who you could say which harrison ford movie do you want to talk about and immediately retorts mosquito coast <laughs> yeah so come aboard my good man so all right well let's get to it steven spielberg george lucas ridley scott francis ford coppola if Harrison Ford hadn't already worked with some of the best directors in the biz, in the mid-80s, he adds Peter Weir to the mix with two movies, the first of which got Ford his sole Oscar nomination thus far. Mm-hmm. But what is Witness about? We'll tell you with our patented Movie Guys recap. As I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain, I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain. But that's just perfect. Han Solo, Indiana Jones, Rick Deckard. Not only is Harrison Ford the epic actor who plays epic characters in epic movies, but how cool are those names? I'll even throw some love at Martin Stett, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Barnsby, and irate motorist. Well, get ready to meet John Book, a good cop. Yes. In a corrupt system. Yes who must avoid assassination by dirty cops and crack the case while protecting a woman who he can never fall in love with while she teaches him to be a better man. Cool. You a witness? A what? A witness, like the movie, Witness. An Amish mother and son travel to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to visit the mother's sister after the death of her husband. Who killed him? 
And how will she get her revenge? Well, since this isn't Walter Hill's witness, we'll never know, because this is Peter Weir's witness. So, you know, fields of wheat. The beautiful, calm nature of the countryside turns to the chaotic ugliness of the city of Philadelphia, as Rachel, played by not-very-Amish Kelly McGillis, and her eight-year-old son Samuel, played by no-way-he's-not-Amish Lucas Haas, visit a family member and take in an Eagles game, time permitting. Well, there's your ugliness. Rachel and Samuel find themselves in Philadelphia's 30th Street station waiting for a connecting train when Samuel goes into the men's room and witnesses something he wasn't supposed to see in a Philadelphia train station bathroom. Sorry, let me rephrase that. Witnesses the brutal murder of an undercover police officer. Turning the movie you thought you were watching into a whole new movie. A feat this film will pull off over and over. But, but that's, that's not, not what, what this, this movie's, movie's about. about. Harrison Ford plays Detective John Book. That's right. He's playing his first detective, a move that was inevitable and welcome. And there was much rejoicing. After an opening purely from the point of view of an Amish family, as the comfortable country becomes the scary city, the movie puts us in the same place as Jacob and his mother are left wondering who can help them. And in strides Harrison Ford, here to save the day. After the last decade of heroes he's played, you almost want to stand up and cheer, even though all he did was enter a doorway. Here the movie lulls us into a police procedural with the tension placed on Rachel and Sam nervously out of their comfort zone in the city so they can go through the cop routine with lineups and mugshots and trips to find informants in areas of Philadelphia that make that train station look like an Amish paradise in contrast. Book gives them a place to stay for the night, his sister's place, an ingenious move in a screenplay full of ingenious moves. This one resulting in the flipping of status in that Rachel exits the night knowing everything about Book, but Book knows nothing about them or their culture. The basic summary of which is, Book could probably use some time on an Amish farm to figure himself out. More on that in a minute. <laughs> mugshot after mugshot, lineup after lineup, Samuel is unable to identify the perpetrator of the murder. And no matter how many Danny Glover-looking dudes they show him, he never wavers, shaking his head that they're not the guy he saw. Which is why it's one of the more amazing subtle moments of this movie when Samuel, very confidently, points at a photo of the man that committed the murder. On a newspaper clipping in a trophy case, in that police station, pointing at a photo of a police officer. <laughs> Now, we celebrate a lot of big heroic moments from Harrison Ford on the show. It's what we love about him. He just generates big heroic moments. An iconic hero doing big iconic things. I say this to set up how big this moment is, despite being small, slow, and silent. Book glances from across the room while on the phone and immediately realizes not only what the kid is pointing at, but the implications of a crooked cop in a room packed with police officers. He hangs up the phone with no goodbye and rises, crossing the room and kneeling next to Samuel grabbing Samuel's accusatory finger, pushing it down out of sight of the officers surrounding them. The gravity in this movie shifts, and with that, we are in a whole new movie. But if you think Acts 2 and 3 are about a whodunit in which Book finds out that McPhee stole a component for meth from a drug seizure, and then sold that to drug dealers and then murdered a cop to cover it up, you're probably thinking again of Walter <laughs> Hill's witness. Stop doing that. This efficient storytelling engine subverts convention and covers all that quicker than Indiana Jones can describe the process of finding the location of the Lost Ark to top men. Any guys ever go to Sunday school? Book tells his partner, Sergeant Elton Carter, who advises Book to keep the case quiet until the captain tells them how to proceed. Then, in an Amish movie that has now gone full Serpico, Book tells only one other person of McVie's crimes, the person he most trusts, Captain Paul Schaefer. Oh, what's going on here? Hi. Oh, Hi, guys. Artie Pufkin. Polymer Records. Nice to see you. 
Book is immediately ambushed and shot in a parking garage by McPhee, revealing that this crime goes all the way to the top. Schaefer is also corrupt, and Book is now completely alone, injured, and on the run. And if keeping the crime a secret is worth killing two cops, then they aren't going to blink at killing a kid who doesn't own a phone. Book orders his partner to remove all traces of the lapse from his files, ditching his car and taking his sister's car to drive the boy and his mother back to safety and seclusion in their farm. But as Book drives away, he succumbs to his gunshot wound, which has left him bleeding for hours, and passes out before hitting the pole of a birdhouse, knocking it over. He's loaded onto a hay wagon pulled by horses, a stranger in a strange land. And with that, we're in another new movie. A good hero movie removes all aids to the hero's victory. So here he is with no electricity and dying, unable to go to a hospital because of the danger that would put Samuel in. In addition, he's surrounded by people who have spent their lives trying to be the opposite of everything he is. But they are protective of life, and so they make it their duty to keep Book alive and shelter him. Rachel's father-in-law, Eli, reluctantly agrees to shelter the foreigner. Book slowly recovers in their care, giving he and Rachel the opportunity to develop romantic feelings while Book tries to blend into the community and try to get his car started. It's a forbidden romance and a cop falling for the woman he's protecting. Now all it needs is a love triangle. Bring on the Gudinov! Die Hard's Alexander Gudinov is a local friend with romantic interest, but he's firmly in the Carrie Elway's dork who won't end up with the girl school of love triangles. But as shot by the director of Picnic at Hanging Rock. It's a clumsy flirtation that is just basically a setup to contrast him with the world's most handsome and charming man. I mean, we're all kind of unworthy, I, I get it, but still, he's an Amish dink. In the movie's most famous scene, Rachel visits Book in the barn, lit by lamplight like a Vermeer, as he tries to repair his car to aid in his return to fighting crime. But in the effortless way the script somehow combines its themes and surface of plot, success in getting the car started also brings with it an intrusion into a world without electricity, a battery, headlights, and a car radio. And on that radio, an oldies station, although to the Amish, I guess it would be a newies station, playing Sam <laughs> Cook's Don't Know Much About History. Spontaneously, Book grabs the Amish woman and dances with her until the natural moment where they would kiss only to be interrupted by Eli, who, despite agreeing with the song's stance on not knowing much about trigonometry, disapproves. Shame! But lest we forget, there's been a murder. And you can't keep a good cop down on the farm for long. So Book goes into town with Eli to use a payphone to call his precinct and learns that Carter has been killed. While in town, a group of total 80s dirt bike punks harasses the Amish folk. Book should turn the other cheek, lay low, and respect the Amish tradition of nonviolence. But he's Harrison Ford, so he punches the punks in the face, responding to Eli's proclamation that it's not their way, with as dirty hairy a line as this movie gets. But it's my way. <laughs> the choice to help the innocent trumps the need to stay hidden, just like in Temple of Doom. And so, the fight is reported to the local police, who report it back to Paul Schaefer. Do me a favor. Just kick my ass, okay? Kick this ass for a man, that's all. Kick my ass. Enjoy. Come on. I'm not asking, I'm telling with this. Kick my ass. <laughs> Which instantly narrows the police dragnet looking for Book. And the next day, Schaefer, McPhee, and another corrupt cop, Ferguson, arrive at the Lap Farm, taking Rachel and Eli hostage, with our hero as vulnerable as possible with no weapons. He'll have to use his surroundings and the lessons he's learned on the farm to defeat them. And do that he does, as Book tricks Ferguson into a corn silo and releases tons of corn on top of him, jamming the exit shut under the weight and suffocating him. Book retrieves Ferguson's gun, which he uses to kill McPhee, while Schaefer holds Rachel and Eli at gunpoint. 
but Eli signals to Samuel to ring the farm's bell. As Book confronts Schaefer, the field surrounding them populates with the approaching community of neighbors heeding the call of the bell. Relieved they weren't being called to build another damn barn, they surrounded the outnumbered Schaefer and increased the number of witnesses from 1 to 30. And in a moment, almost commenting on the way Indiana Jones or Han Solo would resolve the situation by shooting first, Book beats Schaefer with pointing and shouting to the point where Schaefer gives himself up. That is a first. Book says goodbye to Samuel in the fields, and Eli wishes him well out there among them English, and Book departs. And thus brings to a close the first chapter in Franchise Master Harrison Ford's John Book trilogy. Duh, if only that were true. And frankly, by reliving Harrison Ford's magic 80s run, it kind of feels possible. How cool would that be? Just think of all the sequel potential in the title Witness, right? Witness 2 already has potential to be a T-O-O. Witness 2. A second witness. Right. Or maybe John Book is the witness too. Also a witness. But what was he a witness to? T-O. There's all manner of ways to sneak a sequel number in there pretending to be a T-O while being a T-W-O. Witness T-W-O, the assassination. Do you reunite John Book and uh, Samuel? Yes, while he's on the Amish tradition of Rumspringer, Samuel goes back to Philadelphia and joins the police academy. Now there's a colon title. Witness 2, Rumspringer. Paul, I'm pretty sure Harrison Ford's spinoff fan fiction is this show's next logical step. I think we need to complete the John Book trilogy sometime. I think we do it. All right, and that is Witness as we know it. More to come if we have anything to say about it. (laughs) And that's Witness, everybody. And it came out in 1985. So the massive 80s that Harrison Ford has continues, but it was not recently. (laughs) I like to think it was because I saw this in the theater. And of course, we have Bart Caius here as well, ladies and gentlemen, joining us. Vintage movie guy. Movie guy extraordinary. You know what I love about that movie coming out in 1985 is that it turns out Top Gun was the answer to whatever happened to Kelly McGillis. Oh, quite a one, two, three punch for her, you know, witness Top Gun and then the accused. Yeah. So boom, boom, boom. Three great movies in a row matched only by Alexander Gudinov's witness money pit. Die, Die hard. So which is also a pretty <laughs> solid threesome of, of 80s movies. Wow. But we talked about when this uh, film was seen. I saw it in the theater. I was so impressed that my guy was legit. You know, Harrison Ford. Who, oh, I love this guy. He's Alan Solo. He's Indiana Jones. He's a great movie star. Is he legit? And, of course, as we've mentioned, he got his first Oscar nomination for Witness, his only. So, yeah, this legitimized him. And suddenly I was like, my favorite actor is, like, the best actor now. And he's the super movie star. So that's what I remember most about seeing in the theater. But you have a story, Bart? About the first time I saw it, yeah. But I do want to think about the fact that he got a nomination for that. Because I didn't see that. When, When I watched the movie, I did not see, oh, here are the acting chops of Harrison Ford that I've been waiting for. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it came across as just a very, you know, yeoman Harrison Ford acting job, you know? You find that, <laughs> you know, you know. But he's finding a way to use all of it in this very artsy, austere, ready-to-be-nominated-for-an-Oscar movie. That's what's cool about it, though. I would counter a, a Bart and say that is because Harrison Ford is using his superpower <laughs> underplaying. That's what he does all uh, the time. You don't see the showiness uh, that you're going to get with your Daniel Day-Lewis or your uh, Jared Leto. You know, he's, he underplays it all. 
And I don't know. I, I'm not in the position as an actor to know if regular guy is tougher than character with a whole bunch of things you can quote unquote play. But that would be my take on on that. It's another reason we like Harrison Ford. He's not going to be like, yeah, so I went and lived with the Amish for six months. He's like, no, I went and played a role. I went to a farm and shot for three weeks. <laughs> well, as you know, we always come up with fun facts on the show. And Bart? I insist all of my facts be fun. <laughs> The generator of that line, which we use a lot. <laughs> Harrison Ford did go to the Philadelphia Police Department and learn the ways of the force. The police force. Which is not his uh, normal thing, oh. but he, he did it. It was you know reported as going there and spending time embedding himself a little bit, going on calls, etc. Look, if you want to learn how to be a corrupt cop, I can't think of a better place <laughs> than the Philadelphia Police Department. <laughs> Obviously, Danny Glover went and worked with them as well because he was a very good corrupt cop. And, and where are you going to learn that? <laughs> Paul, how did you set up the uh, the premise of this movie? Because about three minutes into it, I went, oh, it's Riggs and Murtaugh go rogue. That's big. <laughs> What's Murtaugh? <laughs> Bad Riggs and Murtaugh. <laughs> go rogue in the bathroom of a, of a train station. But you asked the question about the first time we saw this, right? Yes. Would we say 85 is this when this movie came out? An unusual February 8th, 1985. So wow. not even a big summer movie. Still got for nominated? Ford, but yes, February 8th, 1985. Yeah. Oh, they remembered. I love that they rare. remembered all the way to the end of the year. Yeah, rare. So what I remember is that I saw this on VHS as my first viewing. So I don't know when that would have been. 85, I would have been 14 or something. And maybe a year after, so maybe 15 or 16 maybe 17 years of age, it was out on VHS at my friend's house who had the VHS. And he grew up in a pretty strict Catholic household, very prude people, but, you know, nothing nothing Amish, right? <laughs> and so we're in the den watching the movie, and it just so happens to be the scene where Kelly McGillis turns around bare-chested, right? Yeah. And leading up to that was the least erotic bath <laughs> scene you've ever seen. Right? <laughs> just... Perhaps the least erotic, you know, hour and a half. just that's the worst timing the Amish not known for their eroticism (laughs) especially when showering and bathing so just as she turns around my friend's father walks into the room and sees this and he goes so explicit (laughs) and just walks away and I thought he's gonna walk away thinking that's what this movie is (laughs) so explicit no time to explain to him no 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 you've got it all wrong so so, yeah, when I saw it, I was young enough not to really kind of process the drama of it all, but uh, mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. It's a very low-key, softcore porn, right? <laughs> right. Titness, right. I always enjoy uh, bringing up the movies of the 70s, because like, all these Harrison Ford movies in the 80s, and late 70s, but mostly early 80s, got me into movies. Raiders, Temple of Doom, Jedi, Witness. So then I went back and watched 70s movies. I always talk about how then... I watched them way too soon. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love movies. Movies are great. Let me watch, you know, Nashville and Last Picture Show. And, <laughs> yeah. And so uh, the, the Chinatown, I was like, well, this is way over my head. So there's a lot of those movies I have to see. But thankfully, the Ford stuff connected and got me into movies. I have another story about that, though, about waiting. When I was in high school, Grand Canyon came out. Remember, do you remember this movie? Yeah, Lawrence Kasdan directed. Hell yeah. And Steve Martin. Danny Glover, right? Danny Glover, yes, yes. Yeah, witnesses Danny Glover. (laughs) We're going to start calling him that. He's that from now on. (laughs) And this is probably the only time I I can recall 
engaging in the self-restraint that was needed for this to happen. So I was taking a creative writing course in high school and my teacher and I shared movie talk and she went and saw Grand Canyon and she said, you, you shouldn't see it. She said, you're not going to get it. Don't go to it. You're too young. And of course, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm an intelligent, mature 16 year old. But for whatever reason, I didn't go. And then years and years and years later, I watched it. And I thought, you're right. This would have been completely wasted on a 16, 17 year old kid. When you lived in L.A.? Is that when you watched it or? I think I did live in L.A. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's some of those I, st I need to rewatch living here now. Swingers, Grand Canyon. L.A. story. I got to give them a review. Although I found the locations from that movie, as you can imagine. Yeah. What was the one we watched with uh, Fred Williamson? You got to watch that, man. It's all going down to the International House of Pancakes on Sunset. The Kill. I think it was called The Kill. Well, despite <laughs> the word witness as the title for this movie, nothing fancy and they're counting on the big star. It, it has a $12 million budget and opens in February to an eventual domestic take of $68 million. Whoa. With $47 million overseas, that's $112 million box office. So that's $12 million to $112 million. It's another Harrison Ford hit. What? Not the mega hits he's used to, but Still. put him in your movie and he's a star. So This is almost like an analogy of like how money is Harrison Ford. I'll tell you what, you could take this guy, dress him like an Amish guy, stick him in the country for two hours and people would go watch it. I'll take that bet. <laughs> yeah. And they did. They did. I mean... What is the poster? It's just him. And it says Harrison Ford is John Book. And nobody knows who John... Like, you know, if he said, like, Harrison Ford is Moses, he'd be like, oh, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> Harrison Ford is Mario Andretti. You know, you'd know who he is. But this is, like, Harrison Ford is John Book. Nobody knows John Book. And yet, doesn't seem to matter. It's his big face, and people go. He better be killing some Russians. John Book better be shooting some Russians. That's what I expect. <laughs> <laughs> they're announcing it the way they would Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford is. And they're like, just put the name of the cop and we'll just say Harrison Ford is. And people go, oh, I haven't read any of these books, but I'll go see the movie. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know, his name isn't Leonard Pignatsky or anything. That's because they call him by his full name the whole movie. You know, oh, they're always going, John Book! You're you know, right. Come in. And so he can't have a long name. He got other words to get to. Isn't it? And I was wondering if that was an Amish thing because the Amish do, I think, use first and last names, which then got me thinking about the authenticity of this movie. I think we mentioned just way too much synthesizer music for the oh, Amish. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about that real quick. At some point during the movie, I turned to Paul and I said, synthesizer music in a movie about the Amish. That is what we call a choice. <laughs> <laughs> but that made me think, how many times did the continuitist have to go, did, did they have that? Did they do that? Is that how they said that? Because I saw a lot of things that, uh, well... They had to have an on-set Amish consultant, right? Yeah. Who's the Amish consultant? <laughs> the on-set Amish consultant? Stands in the corner and goes, nope. <laughs> like whatever they nope. start to do. Nope. <laughs> Shame. You know, he's not going to go, well, you need to change the light. He doesn't know lighting. He has, a can he has candles. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, let's talk about that. There were local Amish who worked on the film, mostly in a carpenter sense but they wouldn't be seen on camera because that's their thing so all of the extras in the film are mennonites oh, okay they even talk about the mennonites in the movie as up the street they got phones they got a fridge but uh, that's uh, yeah they were all the extras mostly yeah. yeah well but harrison ford did need no help with woodworking this is the second movie where actual woodworker harrison ford does some woodworking the first one is heroes with henry winkler where they build rabbit cages yeah well he then this 
picks up any slack that was missing. I mean, they raise a <laughs> bar and they do it in a day. In real life, they did it with cranes, but still, they did it uh, for the movies in well, a day, supposedly. That was a bold choice, too, because this movie is a bit of a slow burn. I think we can yeah. agree it's a slow burn. And I thought it was a bold choice to show a barn raising pretty much in real time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's also basically Harrison Ford porn because it is Harrison Ford. He's not shirtless, but he is in sun soaked, you know, drenched, beautiful wonderment up on top of pillars, knocking in pegs and all this stuff with the hammer handyman stuff. I mean, it's real Harrison Ford porn going on there. Well, it all started. It all started. It all started with William Kelly, Earl W. Wallace and Pamela Wallace. They got the script to producer Edward S. Feldman in 1983. So it's a pretty quick turnaround to make the film because they, they got it in 83, shot it in 84, released in 85. So writers, that's how you want it. And these uh, Wallaces and William Kelly had established themselves on a Gunsmoke episode. And this whole idea was founded back then. They thought somebody could wander into an Amish something and the, the whole juxtaposition of violence in the Amish was part of a Gunsmoke episode. And the original witness script, Bart, you want real time barn raising? 182 pages. So that's a three hour <laughs> plus movie. Obviously Peter Weir Peter Weir moved things along to a point, I guess. But uh, and the original title was called Called Home, because that's what they say when an Amish person dies. Ah. Called home. Too hot for gunsmoke, this story. <laughs> I'm gonna put this in the Better than gun smoke pile. <laughs> Save that for later. So, given that this was a 1985 release, have we officially entered the statute of limitations on the ending? Oh, yeah. Oh, we just talked about the ending in the uh, recap. Oh, we free. did. That's right, we yeah, did. we did. Yeah. <laughs> well, Adam and I did. I, yeah. for I forgot you had mentioned the ending. I love the ending. I love that they go their separate ways. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, no, he's not staying. She's not going. Right, right. It, and how Western is that, right? Oh, wow, yes, very. But the thing is, the entire movie is such a foreign filmmaker. I said, kept saying European, but he's actually from Australia. But a non-American style of filmmaking that just from the beginning, it's rolling fields and then gradually the heads rise. And I said at the beginning of it, somebody used to say about Vim Vendors is nobody shoots America like a foreigner. And so he's just getting everything out of it, just turning this into a complete art film. I thought that was just uh, so cool. To your point, Bart, I put this as coming from the Department of Thank God in a world where scripts are overwritten. Book and Rachel were explaining their feelings about having to separate at the end in an original draft. And Peter Weir said, nope, just visuals. And I was like, yes. I read somewhere that Ford got ill and they had to change it. I, it's, I don't think so. I think they probably just made the smart choice because this happens throughout the movie when there could be long dialogue about what's going on and looks, feels, vibes, shots would get the job done just as well. I noticed that in setting up the Die Hard guy. Sorry. Alexander Daniel, good enough. good enough. <laughs> yeah, you almost immediately don't like him for reasons you can't figure out yet. Because oh. as soon as he comes on the screen, you're like, "All right, he's angling for Rachel." Right. I don't see him together, and so much of his character is just visually communicated to the viewer, where all the cues are there. I was amazed by how quickly they bridged the gap between. Oh, I wonder how they're going to develop this either tension or dislike or this relationship between either right. 
Daniel and Rachel, Daniel and John Book. Love triangle. It's like that. It's like two or three exchanges of looks. And you're like, oh, I know where they are exactly with things. You're so right. And what's so amazing about how instant that is and how actually sweet. You say this is a slow burn. I actually, I remembered it being a slow burn, but I was very surprised this time at how it really wastes no real estate. One key example is Alexander Gudinov, who's, you know, wins the Carrie Elway's award for dopey boyfriend that we don't want her to be with, you know, like, <laughs> like, like here comes the drip, but he just sits on the uh, porch swing with her looking like a nerd, looking like a total dirt starts to put his arm around her. She looks at it and he looks back and like, do 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 very next scene is the scene where Harrison Ford's working on the car, gets the radio working <laughs> very next scene, like in the smoothest, coolest dancing, sweeping her off her feet. It's like, that is this movie all the way through. It's like, as soon as Alexander Gudinov is done being a complete dork that she's not going to be into on the porch, the next scene is the other alternative. <laughs> and it gets you to a place where you know and understand the relationship dynamics of all three of those people. And I remember thinking when I started watching this for, I think, the third time, I think I've seen it one other time, is, oh, am I going to have to sit through this character development between these three people? No, they're going to get this done in like two scenes and there's not going to be a heavy dialogue, and you're going to be caught up to speed. And every little thing they do is so monumental that you're like, that stands for a monologue's worth of uh, why you shouldn't use a gun, John Book. Yep. You know, like, no, we stored the bullets in the flower thing. That's how much we despise this. And we'll just show that in one symbol and not have to, like, belabor the point. You know, it does that all over the place. Very efficient movie, you know. Yeah, you could make a comedy video of Ford doing something and cut to Gudinov's glare. <laughs> Ford does something else. Cut to the same Gudinov glare. Drinking lemonade, he's glaring. Repairing the build house, he's glaring. You know, whatever. That's the <laughs> the Gudinov glare. Yeah. <laughs> Even the talk with the kid at the end, you think, well, now they've been through a lot. Goodbye, John Book. Goodbye, Samuel. That's it. He touches his head. He holds his head, which we talked about this earlier, Adam. This his sister. Like sees book as never having that sort of right uh, emotion for anybody, and then he has it with the kid. Visually, they say goodbye. But one more example of that yeah. is at the beginning when he figures out or decides he's going to stow the witnesses at his sister's house. Yeah, we're not confirmed that she's the sister until a couple scenes later. But for some reason, as soon as he walked through the, her door, I said to myself, "Oh, that must be his sister, not his ex-wife, not his girlfriend." For some reason. Something about the relationship, even just in those two seconds where he walked in, I said, oh, this must be his sister. Hmm. John Seal should be noted as the cinematographer on this because he won eventually the Oscar for The English Patient. And he was nominated for Witness, although it didn't win. He was nominated for Rain Man, Cold Mountain, and Mad Max Fury Road. He's good. Oh. So part of that visual setup. He and Peter Weir, he worked on a ton of Weir stuff. I think he did Gallipoli, but he did The Year of Living Dangerously for sure. And he did Fearless, I believe. So, yeah, he's he's awesome. The sister is yet another move in this very efficient screenplay. Just the very idea of where we're going to put her for the night gets her to get books whole backstory from his sister so that the next time she meets him completely off screen, she now knows him far better than he knows her. He's going to have to get to know her, but she knows him instantly. I, the screenplay is just a, a miracle of efficiency. <laughs> well, despite that script, Fox originally turned down the project as they didn't, at the time, make rural movies. 
Even with Ford attached, who just brought them three gigantic Star Wars movies. But uh, Paramount picked it up because they went, yeah, you just made us two gigantic Indiana Jones movies. So they were smarter and got this, and now they won all the rewards of a $12 million movie. Maybe he's a movie star. Yeah, maybe. Hey, but so? that go- does go to show show the point, Paul, that you were saying. At what point does Harrison Ford become a movie star? At this point, Twenty Century Fox goes, "Hey, he's not a movie star. That was uh, some kids' movies, right?" <laughs> like, can you imagine Crazy. an era where you're like, Harrison Ford just does that run of Star Wars to Temple of Doom, and you're like, "Yeah, he's not a star, though." We like him, but no one wants to see him on a farm. That's kind of their <laughs> take. Production moved quickly because the DGA strike was looming. It never actually happened, but they actually shot and got done three days before the strike was supposed to happen. For a movie with no dialogue, I mean, not a lot of risk. (laughs) (laughs) This was Peter Weir's first American film, uh, and he shot it because he was already developing the Mosquito Coast, but funding fell through. And then, of course, he makes this. Then Ford says, I want to do Mosquito Coast, and then that gets made next, obviously. Uh, We'll be talking about that here. But originally supposed to direct Lynn Littman. Anyone? Lynn Littman? Lynn Littman. Lynn Littman. She took a film called Testament about a nuclear bomb being dropped somewhere and the people surviving afterwards. And it starred Lucas Haas, so she recommended him for the cast. And she won an Oscar for documentary short and was married to Taylor Hackford. Yet, never heard of her. Wow. John Badham turned it down. (laughs) Everything went to Badham at some point. What do you make? Stakeout, I think, I guess, would be the (laughs) one. He made instead of this. I'll, I'll take both of them, though. And Cronenberg was in the mix of 1.2 to make this film, which is interesting. Huh. Very different witness, I believe, at that point. Yeah, because he would make, you know, a history of violence later, so you know, which has sort of similar themes-ish, huh? maybe, a little bit. Yeah. So With Viggo Mortensen, who's in this movie. With Viggo Mortensen, <laughs> who makes an appearance here. Did you spot Viggo Mortensen, Bart? I spotted him in the credits, and I went, oh, huh, this movie had Viggo Mortensen in it. Can you point him out? Oh, for sure. He's just amongst the group. I don't even think he had a line. He does have one line. Yeah. Oh, he did? At the t- yeah, sitting at the picnic table, he he leans in. And he says something like, yeah, or something like that. He has one line. <laughs> he builds the barn. Yeah, but still, he quit a Shakespeare in the Park production where he's going to play a soldier to be in this. And probably a good movie. He claims this movie sort of launched his career despite, you know, blink and you miss him appearance amongst a bunch of people dressed the same. Nobody stands out, you know. And then, of course, Patti Lapone was Book's sister. How? Why do I know her? Broadway? Famous Broadway legend. I guess I don't know her. <laughs> Yelling at people who have their phones out. At, 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 you ever hear that oh, famous quote? That's she her. yells at people who have their phones out. But she looked yeah. familiar. I was like, oh. She reminded me of the actress from Kindergarten Cop hmm. who plays Bob Nelson's girlfriend. Pamela Reed. Yeah. Jeez. Five-pointer. Patty Lapone is not Pamela Reed. That is correct. That's what we learned today, if you learn nothing else. And I'll tell you what, Kelly McGillis is no Gene Triplehorn. I'm just saying it right now. <laughs> when I looked at Kelly, I was like, you know who this should be? This should be Gene Triplehorn. I don't think Gene was around in 85, 86, but to me, I just got no, She would wait to do all of her movies in 93. Yeah, I first <laughs> saw her then, Yeah, I think, in the firm. McGillis moved in with an Amish widow and her seven children milking cows and practicing the Pennsylvania German dialect. So she did her uh, deep dive research as well. Sounds relaxing. <laughs> Sounds like relaxing research, right? I'm going to go live with the Amish for two yeah, weeks. Seven children. The corn silo stunt, some more uh, behind the scenes stuff. They dropped actual corn on the guy, but he had a scuba tank under the mound of it to 
breathe until they dug him out. So pretty intense stunt there. Is there a more horrifying death? I, that has stuck with me since the first time I saw this movie. The only two things I remembered was, lady, if you don't get that camera out of my face, I'm going to rip your brassiere off and strangle you with it. And the corn <laughs> silo. More than seeing someone get shot or beheaded or anything like that, that just, I don't know why that frightens me. Maybe because it's real. That could happen to you. You were warned when you grew up in the country not to go in those, you know? Well, they might explode, too. That, too. Let's have a little love for Angus McGinnis, shall we? Who played the guy who... Uh, Fergie, I think his name was, the third guy in the trio of Crooked Cops. I called him fake Stacy Keach, but that was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Where else could you find Angus McInnes, Adam? Angus McInnes is Rosie LaRose from Bobbing Dunn McKenzie's Strange Brew, but also Gold Leader from Star Wars and also in Force 10 from Navarone. I'm, this blows me away connecting all the dots on this. Yeah, he's following Harrison Ford around, which... Smart. Third movie with Ford. Oh, speaking of following Harrison Ford around, Vic Armstrong doubled for Ford where necessary. I wouldn't say it's a stunt-heavy movie if he did anything in that shootout with Danny Glover early or anything like that, but Vic's been his guy forever. Bart, if you don't know, Vic Armstrong is the guy that was dragged behind the truck in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So back when you didn't know how any movies were made, there were like three documentaries on PBS that showed you how three movies were made, you know, Star Wars, Raiders, and Superman or whatever. So Vic Armstrong, like Paul and I have known Vic Armstrong since we were kids, like, cause they interviewed that guy and showed him being dragged behind the truck and all that stuff. Yeah. Famous stuntman. I remember that little documentary. I thought it was on HBO and they just played the heck out of it. Like, yeah. It was and, probably on there too. Yeah. And as a kid, because you're, you have no understanding of anything. You're like, that doesn't oh. look that hard. I, I can do that. I mean, I can <laughs> do that. That looks fun. Actually. <laughs> being dragged behind the truck remember the era of the celebrity stuntman like do you, you knew dar robinson you dar knew this robinson. guy you knew uh who's the guy from Smokey the bandit any of the guys that drove those big car stunts mm-hmm. and of course evil knievel the og but it was like such a <laughs> stuntman celebrity of the time who's the guy from Smokey the bandit hal needham is that the stunt driver hooper oh that's right became a director well, that was Jackie Chan's kind of entrance into the world. Is he, he was often compared to Dar Robinson, I remember. And yeah. Jackie Chan was a stuntman who, you know, fronted as an actor and then became an actor. That's what I understood. He had small performances later on. He's in Lethal Weapon. He gets shot and hung briefly. The guy that goes, hey, Riggs! Rat-tat-tat-tat! And then he dies. Let's talk about favorite scenes. I got one. It is the phone call sequence where Book oh. is on to... Paul being involved. Interesting. Here's another fun fact. Captain Schaefer, whatever his name is, we find out from his wife, Paul, there's a call for you, right? So his name is Paul Schaefer. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Dave. Can we get some crime witnessing music, Paul? Paul, can we get some Amish music to play us out? That's now my favorite scene. (laughs) Paul Schaefer. (laughs) Man, that scene where he gets that phone call, that camera's behind him the whole time. He turns around once after he finds out his friend died. He turns around to the camera, and then we cut to the party, and the phone picks up. Clearly, he turned back around and called Paul because he's now taking the offensive. And that shot, that phone call with him is always behind him, too. The camera's behind him. You see his sweaty neck and the hat, and you can just feel his rage, even though he's... That's great. So much more powerful. That's good acting. And good directing and good cinematography. It's everything working together. You know, whatever you did to Carter, I'm going to 
can do to you too. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. just such good stuff. Yeah, I love everything yeah, about and that that's scene. Such a, such a big moment too, and to hide the emotion from us when he finds out that the guy's been killed. Right, that's what it was. That's that's just, and that's very again going back to the European filmmaking style of Peter Weir of like, no, no, just let's just shoot the back <laughs> of the head. You know. Now maybe it was because, you know, we're savvy movie watchers. But here's another example of of where I kind of instantly knew the character and you didn't have to flesh it out for me. And maybe it was me just anticipating, but as soon as he went to Paul Schaefer and started telling him about Murtaugh, I'm like, well, that guy's in on it. He's clearly yeah. in on it, which may have been just me being, you know, a little too clever for my own good. But at the same time, I'm thinking like the sister, how did I just instinctively know that this guy was probably crooked? And then to follow that up where John book puts it together simply because Murtaugh comes after him, McPhee. Let's call him Murtaugh. Screw it. Simply because McPhee comes after him. So Murtaugh comes after Indiana Jones. Go ahead. (laughs) And the commander from Top Gun is trying to save everybody, and they try to kill the kid. And then they drown Rosie LaRose from Bob and Doug McKenzie's Strange Brew in a corn silo. But no, the moment where he puts it together simply because McPhee comes after him, to me, was a bit of a stretch, but at the same time made sense. I don't know why he would necessarily have concluded that, other than, look, there's only three people that know this, me, the kid, and Paul Schaefer. Yeah. So somebody told McPhee. <laughs> Obviously, when you know the cop turns out to be crooked, the only guy he tells it to, and you said, yeah, okay, we could tell that guy's probably in it or whatever. They do give you a beat before that plot line does fold, and you realize he is in on it. And it just serves to moments later realize that book is completely alone on this, except for his one friend. Now, like he can't tell anybody, anybody could be on the take on this. You know, it really makes him like alone in moments after, you know, they just reveal that. So this is always fun. Who else could have been John book alternate castings that could have happened in the eighties. Now this isn't just cast him yourself. This is who they thought might work. I've heard these dumb alternate castings my entire life. Here we go. Let me guess, Paul. Dustin Hoffman, huh? Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Clint Eastwood and Robert Clint Redford. Eastwood. Robert Redford. Al Pacino. No. Dabney Coleman. Dabney Coleman. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you said Schwarzenegger is, in fact, Stallone. Ah! See, uh, it's, these are the same story every time. <laughs> Mel Gibson, Richard Gere, Kevin Costner, Burt Reynolds wanted it. Jack Nicholson was in the mix. Different movies with most of those people. But it's interesting, when I think about the other movies from 1985 that Ford could have been in, and there aren't many. I went through like 200 movies. Oh, yeah? Five that we would have been in. Out of Africa stood up to the top, perhaps. We could have been Redford's part in that. They could have done a switch him, you know, in some alternate universe. Those guys are in the different movies. Talk about John Book getting underplayed, though. I mean... Redford would have still just had a conversation with Paul at the end rather than yelled at him <laughs> and yeah. pointed. Don't you think it's, you're doing the wrong thing here? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Come on, guy. Instead of, Paul, enough! You know, yeah. God, great points and shouts in this movie. I was not prepared for the level of shout. We'll get to it. Out of all those people, they did cast the most man you could possibly cast. Harrison Ford is such a man oh. in this. Right. Such a man. Yes. And the great thing is he's a cop at the top of this thing. And then they take all that cool city man guy stuff out of him and then build him all the way back up. And that's when the bad guys come. (laughs) Did you have favorite scenes besides my phone booth scene? I've been thinking about that. I like the way that the train station sequence played out. But I think my favorite scene is the kid discovering McPhee. 
the way Book handles it and immediately realizes, oh, yes. all right, because he, he grabs the kid's finger. He doesn't shush him or anything. He just grabs right. his finger and quiets yeah. the boy. At that moment, you realize, oh, we're in it knee deep now. And just can you imagine any movie that have something so subtle like that happen that turns this sense of danger, turns this sense of paranoia. I mean, that almost serves like the first act of a Hitchcock movie and just like, oh, we're in a different world now, you know? It's really cool. Sorry, there was something else about that scene that I'm glad it didn't go that direction. I'm watching that scene, and if you watch not Paul Dano, Lucas Haas, <laughs> looking at the picture, and he looks around and he looks at the cop, I think he looks at another cop, it almost feels like the child is processing, wait a minute, this is a good guy, and I might not better tell somebody. So for half a second, I yeah. thought he wasn't going to reveal it because he figured out, I can't finger a cop, which would have been way too much for a five or six-year-old to figure out. But there was that moment where I thought, wait a minute, he's going to sit on this because he realizes he can't, you know, tattletale on the teacher type of thing. Yeah. It's that kind of stuff. I mean, what a script for Harrison Ford to right. sort of pivot out of franchises. Obviously, he returns to them. But, you know, to have a run of original films for like three years and then Last Crusade and then another run of original films up until he doubles up on Jack Ryan. It's just a great one to suddenly, I'm not going to be Indiana Jones right away again. I'm going to do this other thing that it succeeds in all the other directions a movie can. And yet it's so Harrison Ford. It goes in this like Oscar worthy direction with all these serious themes and serious relationships and adult stuff. Yet there's a whole cop thing there as well. I mean, he really found a way because how do you break out of being Han Solo and Indiana Jones? These just tremendous icons. That's amazing. This does it. This really changes his career in a big way, I guess. Are he and Hanks the same age? Hmm. No, no. He's got like a dozen or 15 years on Hanks. I mean, Harrison Ford turned 80 this year. 80. No. Yeah. Paul. <laughs> yeah. You need to confirm that fact because that is not fun. <laughs> Check in. <laughs> but you insisted. <laughs> Check internet. Internet says. 80. Must be true. Yeah. Well, that can't be because I'm only 23. I, I hate to break it to you. He's not only 80, but he's still Indiana Jones. <laughs> That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> going back to Bart saying that this movie ends, they're not staying together. It just ends. He walks away. You know, when you get to the end of a movie like this, you go, well, what is the solution? You know, he says, if I made love to you, I'd have to stay here or you'd have to leave. You know, so that sets up how they just can't do this. And then it's getting down to the end. Everything's resolved except for them. And it just in the back of my head, I'm like, if it was made by an American filmmaker, they would end up together. He would walk away and she would say, wait, and I <laughs> will always love Racing Barnes. But, you know, it's it's a European style filmmaker. It's an Australian filmmaker. And I'm like, no way. They are not staying together. He's going to walk away. <laughs> and that's it just feels like a, a braver, more realistic choice. But also just that, you know, little gutsy European filmmaker type thing. And that's some hero shit. Oh, yeah, totally. He walks away like Mad Max does at the end of Fury Road. I mean, it's like it's also the kind of cool cop move, too. Sorry, babe. I got some crime in the city. Shane, come back. Yeah. No, but up to the very moment where he's leaving, the very last shot of him and Daniel, that long shot of them exchanging, you know, at least acknowledging each other as he's driving down the road and Daniel's walking toward the house because English is leaving and Daniel's coming to Rachel. The inevitable is happening. 
But even in that exchange, Daniel's a jerk. I mean, he gives him this odd tip of the cap. He's just like, <laughs> so long, I win. Like, ah. Uh. And again, no dialogue. Yeah, it's almost like Book stopped to have a conversation. Daniel tipped the hat, kept walking, and Book went, all right, <laughs> got to <laughs> go. But again, we don't have dumb dialogue where they go, she's all yours now, friend. Yeah. Thanks, pal. You know, like, Take good care of her. I will. Yeah. And, and you know, the yeah. cheesy version of this movie would be like, line we said earlier that we said to each other uncomfortably and then later <laughs> repeated when we were at each other's throats. And now we're friends. So here's that line for the third time. Right. You know, like you see that happening. That's exactly what happened in a cheesier version of this. All right. Well, let me get into the Oscar nominations a little deeper. But nominated for Best Picture, which is great. Best Actor, as we mentioned. Best Director for Peter Weir, Cinematography, and Art Direction, Set Decoration. And the score was nominated as well, despite all our juxtaposition feelings on it, that it was Vangelis meets Tangerine Dream. But it won two. Original Script and Editing, Tom Noble, who also was nominated for Thelma and Louise. So that's pretty cool. Seven... BAFTA Award nominations, six Golden Globe nominations, and it won the WGA Award for Original Screenplay, which it should. Ford's other best chances in an Oscar, what do you think they are? What else should he have been nominated for Best Actor for? I got two. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, sure. And The Fugitive. Fugitive. Talk about underplaying. That whole movie underplays The Fugitive. Fugitive and... Well, also, The Fugitive, you give him kind of the Lifetime Achievement Oscar nom, at least, you know, like for Untouchables or Connery or something. It's like, oh, here he is. He's doing his thing again, and he's great, and we love him. Give that guy a nomination, you know? Do you do Blade Runner for actor? Uh, It's such a tough call because, you know, back when it came out, he had the bad narration in it, and then Mm -hmm. I've heard his chances. But now he looks like he's a sharper actor when you take that out. I think Blade Runner should have won a Palme d'Or because that's just such a art film. That's uh, I, I can't imagine the Academy thinking any good acting is going on inside that insane movie. But see, that's what's great about Witness. This is the type of movie that they do nominate. That's usually boring. <laughs> this movie manages to be a Harrison Ford movie in the middle of all the trappings the Academy loves, you know, you got a, another culture, you got, you know, all this mature relationship type stuff, you know, uh, but in the middle of it, it's a Harrison Ford movie, like crazy. It's amazing. Regarding Henry. Oh, that would have been a nom, right? He wasn't nominated for that. Have you seen that, Adam? Is that one of the ones we got to cross off your list? Why no, I did show? see that or finally see during the oh, quarantine, actually. Yeah. All right. You need to see Presumed Innocent. Okay. Oh, yes. I need to see that. So is this like 1981 when, you know, Adam and I, we haven't seen Chariots of Fire because no way it's better than Raiders of a Lost Ark and no. it won Best Picture. Is it a cheap sort of way to behave like a baby about a movie that shouldn't have won Best Picture? Not seeing it? Yes. I still haven't seen Out of Africa, which won Don't Best Picture bother. in 1985. I mean, should I or just watch no. Witness again? No, Just commit to never watching Out of Africa. I've started committing to never watching certain movies. Some things come up and I'm like, I'm just never going to watch that. Yeah, you're fine without Out of Africa. Skip it. It's often considered, witness, a worthy reflection of the Amish lifestyle. And yet, there were protests. Putting the Amish in an R-rated film, some considered insensitive towards them. What do I say about that? How would they know? (laughs) But uh, (laughs) there is something called the National Committee for Amish Religious Freedom. And they called for a boycott, fearing after the movie there would be overpopulation of their homes and villages by tourists. Hmm. They really thought this was going to make that barn they raised a hobbiton, huh? (laughs) (laughs) 
pack your bags, kids. We're going to that place where they shot that movie. Africa? No. (laughs) (laughs) But the film did premiere at the Fulton Opera House in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, right in the heart of Amish country. So I have been afraid of you have. Oh, no kidding. To Lancaster, yes, yes, yes. It's uh, oh, same it, here. Did you go to Dutch Wonderland? Dutch Wonderland is my favorite Schwarzenegger character, though. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that they initially approached Robert Redford and Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Dutch Wonderland? <laughs> I thought he was a big time wrestler. No, no, that was that was his signature move was the Dutch Wonderland. Oh, right. <laughs> Uh, this is always fun facts too. The the crazy only in 1984 box office performance of this movie because hmm. it be, it came in number two behind what movie? Take a guess when it when Witness opened. It wasn't number one. It was number two because of something that's another six, movie. from 84, right? Because this is February 85. It opens correct. Oh. Yes, this was a movie in its sixth week in theaters, still number one, and Harrison Ford could knock it out of the top spot because it was such a huge hit. So this must have been something that got Oscar buzz. So it was released probably later the previous year or a Christmas movie, I guess. Christmas 84. Oh, Gremlins? Nope. I think that was summer. Uh, Your answer is Beverly Hills Cop. Oh. So here's how it plays out. Beverly Hills Cop in its sixth week remains number one. Witness opens number two. Cop stayed number one for three more weeks. Then Witness moves up to number one in week five. Then Beverly Hills Cop goes back to number one in its 15th week. Whoa. Finally, both movies relenting the top spot to films such as Friday the 13th, The New Beginning, and Police Academy 2. Then Stick for a week and Code of Silence and Rambo First Blood Part 2. That whole lineup of movies is 85 AF. AF. Only in 1984 or 85 could that happen at the box office at all. Wow. I was going to say, because Beverly Hills Cop was written for Stallone, so here's Stallone and Witness, these two would-be uh, Stallone movies, battling it out. And I'm like, I bet Stallone's upset that he didn't take either of those roles. And then, of course, here comes First Blood Part Two. so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The interesting part is Beverly Hills Cop is also Paramount. Uh, Paramount thought they put enough time between Beverly Hills Cop and Witness to have a hit, then go into the next hit, and then they are duking it out for the top spot for a month. Any other thoughts on the film that we didn't mention before we get to the outro bits and segments? Bart, what was the first thing you were going to lead with that we talked about right before we recorded, which was the the electronic score? Yeah, I think we covered the fact that that as an Amish movie, the the, the music was just so juxtaposed. And it was just like I think Paul said, it's just such a score of 1985. I know. Paul, you may enjoy this. There were moments of that movie, and I think because of the music, that I had... Uh, flashbacks and reminiscence of Tree of Life, which I can't quite explain, but there was something about the tone of the visuals and the audio at the same time. I'm like, this really reminds me of Tree of Life. Oh, yeah, I see that. And I think it was also because you heard a lot of the air moving. You heard the, the grass moving. That was 90% of, yeah, Terrence Malick's script. <laughs> the grass You could take moves. the gorgeous establishing shots of this movie and make another full-length sequel to Witness if you wanted to. There's just a lot of gorgeous shots oh, of yeah. wheat and people walking in the wheat and then more wheat. Yeah. And then wheat. Yeah. Yeah. And wheat again. You know, what's funny <laughs> is uh, the Apple TV shuffled after Paul and I watched Witness. It shuffled to 48 hours. And I was like, this is what Witness would feel like if 
Walter Hill had directed it, I think. Like, like it easily could have become a Walter Hill movie if you wanted it to be. But Peter Weir bringing that shooting the grass and the, the heads rising over it and just the whole world. And even when it comes down to, like, John Book taking them to that cafe, they got the corner seat on that cafe of two busy Philadelphia streets with more people and cars than you've ever seen. And it's just like the way they start in the Amish country and go completely from the point of view. We don't see Harrison Ford until after the murder, all this stuff. It's completely from the Amish point of view. We go from the grasses to the city, you know, and then they're freaked out by like normal stuff or like the kids, like not freaked out, but like the kids like, Oh, look a balloon. Oh, look at this. Uh, oh, what's a water fountain. And then the kid witnesses a murder. <laughs> You're like, they've spent all this time putting you into the world of these, the Amish people through all these beauty shots. These really like, you know, just like Terrence Malick would put you into Vietnam and the, the red lines, like long shots of the river and the trees and the birds and these sort of things. Then when that murder happens, you've spent so much time, that your point of view on the world has gotten more innocent until it's forced to grow up in that, in that moment, at the same time as a kid. I thought that was what was so cool about the Terrence Malick stuff that he was doing is that he basically made you Lucas Haas, <laughs> the innocence of everything you presented by the time of the murder, you have kind of become Lucas Haas in a way, you know? Well, Paul Dano, but yeah, Paul Dano. Yeah. Either one. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a definite acknowledgement of the fact that they set up so many sweeping shots of uh, plain people walking through fields and buggies and all this stuff that by the time the first buggy gets to a busy street corner, I'd look oh, at it yeah. in the movie. I went, God, we just look ugly. Right. I know. <laughs> all our stuff, all our nasty metal and exhaust and everything just looks ugly. Concrete streets and all comparatively. Yeah. It, it accomplishes a lot, but it does. we look uglier. Yeah. yeah, but it just makes the points. And also from the point of view of just the characters, not even like a judgment on Western civilization, but just like, you know, I mean, I think anybody watching it would be like, yeah, I could go for some time in the country instead of breathing that exhaust. You know? Two more points worth mentioning. Akira Kurosawa called Witness one of his favorite films of all time. So don't take it from us. Wow. Take it from the director of Throne of Blood. And oh. Ron. <laughs> but I totally see it. I mean, I totally see what he would get out of this, you know. And preach Roger cool. Ebert, who called it a movie about adults whose lives have dignity and whose choices matter to them, and it's also one hell of a thriller. That's all I look for in a movie. As an adult, as a guy who's grown to adult age, I just want everything to be adult now. It's not everything's going to be, but that which should be, and when it fails to be, I get upset. So Ebert pointing that out, that in fact this movie about adults is adult and a smart thriller. But... Where do the Harrison Ford list of essentials fall in this movie? Does he have righteous anger? Oh, oh yes. God. The most righteous yes, anger? shoot out with McPhee. I'm sorry, I said to Adam, I've never seen a bad guy screamed into giving up. Oh, I love that. He's got a gun. And... All right, all right, you made a good point. When have you seen a movie end like that? The contrary to that, though, is my favorite... Uh, Seagal moment where Steven Seagal's walking through and the guy goes, you have that? He goes, what are you going to do? Shoot us all? And he goes, no. Boom. And he shoots the guy who says that. <laughs> so the other six guys are like, all right. All yeah. right. All right. All right. What are you going to shoot us all? No, just you. <laughs> That's the taking it to the next step of stand by me, which I think was, yeah, no, you shoot all, what are you going to do? Shoot all of us? No ways. Just you. That is it. Oh, That's wow. right. He says that. That's right. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and Seagal, of course, had taken to the next level. But I read an interesting thing about the finale of this movie, and that you know you see that's a great shot where the grandfather says you know pull the bell, and then they follow them outside, and you see the rope in the foreground, knowing okay the kid's gonna go ring the bell, and when he does, everyone's gonna come running. What are they gonna do? Kick somebody's ass? They they're Amish. They don't have nothing. But what they do is they show up and address the violence by witnessing it so oh, it was the mere yes. fact of the group to all witness it meant yeah that guy is not going to follow through with his plan yeah he's not going to kill uh, all of them yeah. he's not going to kill john book he's not going to kill the kid you don't get going you don't get goebbels all right sorry. <laughs> if i can't get eastwood i'll get pacino if i can't get pacino it's a uh, hearts of darkness <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that entire final speech is a uh, righteous anger does he point at him why, yes, he does, Paul. He points quite a bit. Now, I lost count because I did not want to be keeping statistics at the end of the movie, so I'm afraid we're going to have to count points and shouts here as a group. <laughs> as I've pulled all of the clips. That was when I saw that. I thought that was one of the more realistic gunfights right? I've ever experienced in a movie. And I think it had mostly to do with the audio, but a lot to do with his acting. You know, it was truly panicked. It was yeah. truly hostile, and it just felt like that's how people would react, even a cop, right? Not this kind of cool hand loop bullshit right. where you know they're just you know too slick. He's panicked. He's worried. Things are exploding around him. I thought that was a very that reminded me of the. Um, Saving Private Ryan opening scene oh, where you're like, right. I'm in this. I'm in the middle of this. Right. It's just, it's shocking. Also, by the way, that scene kicks off with, and you could see how a hundred directors would direct this completely differently, but he's putting his clothes into the trunk of his car. It's a wide shot. So now we feel, okay, he's maybe being watched. And then the very right front corner of the frame is, a, is the trunk of a car and it releases its weight. So the shocks go up. So someone just got out of that car without ever seeing the feet step out of the car or anything. That is just great suspense. And then the rest of this, yeah, plays out like Alan J. Pakula as well. All right. So that's four shouts. Here we go. It's all right. I'm a police officer. Man's wanted for murder. Now stand back. What are you going to do, Paul? You're going to kill me? You're going to shoot me? You're going to shoot him? Stand back. You're gonna shoot him! Ah! Is that what you're gonna do, Paul? Him? The woman? Me? It's over enough! Okay, that's that was tough to count. I got eight out of that. Well, the whole thing's one shout. It's all shout. It's a if it, look if there's a stopping point. If there's an exclamation <laughs> point, I feel then I just can't consider it its own shout. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but that scene too was very real. That scene. Was, oh, wasn't that great? I think there's something about the audio. There's something. That, obviously about the acting but much like the shootout scene you really feel like this is how this would go down it's not cool it's not clean it's not neat it's not clever it's it's two panicked people physically moving like they're panicked that's what i like yeah nobody's cool that's such a good point it's not cool yeah it's not slick paul has no plan yeah Yeah. oh right 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 oh paul i had that exact thought in that scene i'm like what's the exit strategy for either of you here desperation yeah we have another shirtless ford in bed 
but he's been shot, so it's not very romantic. I love the shot of them loading him onto the horse cart when they pull him out of the, the car. Just like bloody Harrison Ford being thrown onto like the hay of the horse cart. You're like, you're at, at a rock bottom right now. You're going to be hauled away on a horse cart to try and save your life. <laughs> so how Harrison Ford is he in this? Zero to 100%. How Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford in Witness? Yeah, I mean, there's there's no point at this movie do you not think Harrison Ford, right? I mean... He's 100%. The 100. Yeah, I think so. I feel like I had more doubt in my 100% that I gave to Raiders than this. Like, this was just like, oh, it's every single angle of Harrison Ford and some new ones, I think, too. You know, He's as Harrison Ford as Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise in right. his movies. Yeah. He's the Fordiest. Remember, he's the cruisiest. I think it's maybe that's it. The showing of the new stuff that we'll see more of as we go along in Presumed Innocent and the Jack Ryan movies, Frantic, that he hasn't shown us yet as successfully. And we add two punches to the Harrison Ford punch count. He punches the local guy in the gut and the face. And so that brings the total of career punches in Harrison Ford movies by Harrison Ford to those he is sharing the screen with to 68. 68 punches. Wow. And 39 of them alone were in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So <laughs> We've got the records here. No, he's never going to outshout Frisco Kid. He's never going to outshout the quality of Witness. And he's never going to outpunch Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. All right. So with that, we bid farewell to Bart Caius, everybody. Bart Caius. Bart, thanks. Any final words? No, thanks for having me back, Paul. It's been long, far too long since we've yeah. done this sort of thing. And uh, I couldn't. Well, I could think of a lot of other movies to do it with, but Witness was definitely uh, one. <laughs> I notice when I leave California, not everybody talks about movies all the time. Is that weird for you? Yeah, what's it like? Yeah, I, you know, cer certainly given where I am and specifically where I live, there's just not a lot of industry talk. It's, it's actually kind of relieving to, mm -hmm. you know, I've really tuned it out in the last two years. I really just haven't been paying attention. It's just not on my radar. I'll give you my quick synopsis on Hollywood and you can do with this what you want. It really is a trade organization and it's a trade organization like plumbers or electricians or quilters and they have banquets and award shows just like the plumbers trade organization and the electricians trade organizations and they have trade magazines. But for some reason, probably because their product is outward facing, the rest of the world is interested. But the reality is you can't just walk up to the Plumbers of America trade show and sit down at their awards show and make sure that Adam Wick gets welder of the, the year, right? And you can't do that at the Oscars. They're not going to let you just walk in. So when you realize it's just a trade organization with a bunch of people who are talking about their work to each other, mm -hmm. you realize that, oh, okay, this, this isn't as much a part of me as I thought it was, much like I won't go <laughs> to the Plumbers banquet at it's the end of the year show. and watch yeah. Yeah, it's a trade show. It's we'll watch the awards for, you know, best sweat pipe. I don't, you know, whatever. But I do miss it. Obviously, I had a lot of fun tonight. I, I was very excited about it. I did all the notes, wrote down, you know, some of my uh, my jokes. So thank you for that. I hope we can do it again. Just let me know. Well, and next up, uh, tune into the Ford Fiesta for our episode of The Mosquito Coast. We hope to have uh, Adam Collins join us here. We talked about it before, and we're trying to square out a date to meet up with him. Uh, because that wraps Witness. Excellent. And Paul, I think every Amish person who watches this will be impressed with how we covered this movie. Adam, they're not watching. Mm -hmm.